Listen, as I read this ancient prophecy, we will go there later, but just close your eyes, listen to this ancient text written by the prophet Isaiah 700 years before the birth of Christ. He was despised, rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. We esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds... We are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. All we like sheep have turned, every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And he has borne the sin of many makes intercession for the transgressors. This is the Word of God. Didn't read all of this hymn. This is a hymn that Isaiah wrote. Just read part of it. We're going to read all of it near the end of our time together. But what I want us to think about is that this is powerful in that it describes what Jesus went through. But then add to that that it was written 700 years before this happened. Prophesied, predicted, foretold, promised. And here we are in Barrie, Ontario, Canada in 2019. Some 2,700 years after this was written, celebrating its fulfillment 700 years after it was written, 2,000 years after it had been fulfilled. Oh, God is good, and we have much reason to be confident in the things that we believe. One of the great challenges for any preacher all around the world on a day like today when we celebrate Good Friday, we celebrate the goodness of our sin paid for, uh, us redeemed by God through the death of His Son. The challenge, though, is it becomes so normal, doesn't it? 
Jesus died for our sins, was buried, and on the third day He rose again. How can we make this fresh? How can we see the horror of it all? It's something I can't do for you, but let us pause now to pray that by God's grace and by His Holy Spirit, He would take us back to Golgotha where God in human form was crucified to save us from our sin. Maybe this will help before I pray for us. If God had not sent His Son to bear the full weight of hell on the cross, then it is you and me that ought to be crucified and thrown into hell forever. What a Savior to trade with us. Let's pray. Oh God, this task, is, it's too much. Too much for me to remind us of all that You have accomplished. I'm not sure that I even can conceive of it myself. And surely I cannot. We cannot. We, we cannot see the depth of Your love or, or, or the magnitude of the horror that we killed the Son of God in human form because we were sinners he was righteous. But we plead with you together as one church under Christ. Open the eyes of our heart to see all that you have accomplished. Maybe not fully, but open the door for us so that we might rightly worship you, our Savior, our Redeemer, our God. As we look at this ancient prophecy 2,700 years old, I pray that you would remind us that we walk in, in a tradition and a prophetic truth that far predates us. We are part of something ancient. And in that we take comfort. Open the eyes of our heart, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want us to consider the cross through this ancient prophecy of Isaiah. But more than that, I want us to understand the prophecy not just as a description of what happened, but understand it in its own context. You see, for 700 years, well, if you came to Isaiah 53, which is what I just read for you, portions of it, you would have to try to understand what is the prophet trying to say without being able to say, oh, he's talking about Jesus who died on the cross. And the only way that you could understand what the prophet was trying to communicate was to understand this chapter, this hymn, within the context of the book itself. So I just want to take a few minutes to try and lead us to this climactic declaration of God's salvation through His servant who suffers for us. And so let's go back 2,700 years. And, and we have just unrolled this scroll and we're trying to make sense of it. Trying to understand what has not yet happened. So the crucifixion of Christ is still in the future for us. We're in 2700 B.C. And so the only way to understand this beautiful portrait of the cross is to understand the book. Now, there's a, this is a complicated book. But let me just give you a little bit of information to contextualize this amazing hymn in Isaiah 53. The book of Isaiah can be divided into four parts. And all you need to know about these four parts is the first part is chapters 1 through 6. 
And in those six chapters, all the major themes of the book are introduced. And then in chapter six, the prophet is called by God. Then we come into our second major section of the book, which runs from chapter seven through to the end of chapter 39. And although there's a lot happening in in these chapters, the dominant theme of these chapters is judgment. Judgment for sin. The the dominant tone of, of these chapters are of sin and death and judgment and condemnation. Really hard chapters to get through. Now there's some bright spots there. There's some promises of salvation, but that's the main part of those chapters. We get to the end of chapter 39 and we're told that God's people are going to go into exile. That is, the foreign nation, the Babylonians, are going to come in and destroy the land. They're going to destroy Jerusalem. They're going to destroy God's temple. They're going to kill most of the people. And whereas in the time of Solomon, the people were more numerous than the sand on the seashore, 4,000 people will survive this. And they'll be taken to Babylon, which is current-day Iraq. So 4,000 people who survived this onslaught by the Babylonians, the ancient Iraqis, were taken to Iraq. Then we get to the third major section of the book. And this is all about redemption and comfort and the promise of restoration. And so from chapter 40 through 55, it's all about comfort, comfort my people. I've paid, uh, I've paid you for your iniquity and your sin and I'm going to deliver you. I'm going to save you. This is the part where we like to, to, to live, right? We want to be in chapters 40 through 55. And then the fourth major section of the book is chapters 56 through 66. And, and this is all about having been delivered, God promises His people a glorious future, a new heavens and a new earth, a new Zion, a new Jerusalem where there will be no more crying, no more tears, there will be no more uh, death, no more sin for those who make it to the new Jerusalem, the new heavens, new earth. But these chapters also talk about those who reject God and His salvation from that third major section. And they say for those who reject God, they will go where the fire is never quenched and the worm never dies. That's how the book of Isaiah ends, actually. So that's the book of Isaiah in a nutshell. Just notice for a minute the similarities between the structure of the book of Isaiah and the Bible. You get the the introduction to the Bible in those first five books, which lays out exactly what God expects from us. And it sets out the problem and all the major themes of the Bible. And then you get... The Old Testament, which although there are promises of hope and redemption, there's uh, glimpses of grace and salvation, the dominant tone is of sin and death and judgment and condemnation. It's interesting. There's 39 books in the Old Testament and the first 39 chapters of the book of Isaiah capture the same themes as the Old Testament. Then we get to that third major section in chapter 40, which goes to the end of the book. It's all about comfort and comfort and salvation and redemption and how God's going to uh, solve our sin problem and pay off our sin debt. And climactically, we see what we're celebrating today, the death of Christ. And it's interesting that from chapters 40 to 66, you have 27 chapters and there's 27 books 
in the New Testament. And our Bible ends in the book of Revelation with the new heavens and the new earth, but also the promise of the eternal fire, the lake of fire, which is exactly how the book of Isaiah ends. This book is the fifth gospel. It's the gospel of the Old Testament because it is the entire Bible in one book. Now our passage, Isaiah 53, of the suffering servant is the climax of the third section. Now remember, section one, introduction, all the major themes. Section two, sin, death, judgment, condemnation. Section three, comfort, salvation, redemption. Isaiah 53, the hymn that we're looking at today that describes the cross is the climax of that third section. It's a prophecy of how is God going to do this? How is He going to save us? Isaiah 53 gives us the answer. I want us to just break down this third section. I said it's all about comfort and deliverance and salvation. Let's just break it down now into two parts. This is, this is also really important for understanding Isaiah 53, the climax of this section. The first eight chapters, chapters 40 uh, through 48, so maybe that's nine chapters. Those, those first chapters are actually all about God's historical plan to deliver His people from Babylon. And, and the imagery in those chapters are that God is going to bring His people out of Babylon just as He brought them out of Egypt. And so you get this imagery of a second exodus. And it's, it's, its intention is very historical. It's all about you're in Iraq and I'm going to bring you back to Jerusalem. It's all very much space and time fulfilled 70 years after they went into Babylon. But then you get to chapters 49 through 55. And in those chapters, God says, but that historical second exodus out of Babylon is not enough. Because if I bring you out of Iraq, just as I brought you out of Egypt, you're just going to sin again. And I'm going to have to send you away into slavery and exile again. And I'll have to deliver you again. So chapters 49 through 55 are all about God saying, I need to, to enact a deeper deliverance. I need a deeper, more permanent, more eternal salvation. You are enslaved to your own sin. And unless I save you from your sin, you're going to be back in a, a foreign country again, enslaved and exiled. And so these themes go together, and what you have here is this compounding effect. In, in, in chapters 40 through 48, uh, Isaiah wants us to be thinking about the exodus out of Egypt. In Exodus 12, think of the Passover meal. And, and whereas God brought the people out through Moses, He's going to bring His people out through Cyrus. Don't worry about the names, but He's going to send a deliverer. He wants you thinking about that. He wants you thinking about the first Exodus and the second Exodus. And He says, in very like way, I'm going to deliver you from your sin. In these chapters, there are four hymns embedded. The suffering servant of Isaiah 53 is the fourth of four. We're not going to read the first three, but I, I'm going to note them for you, and I would highly encourage you to go back and to read them because they're building 
te- they're explaining who this suffering servant is until you get to the fourth one. And then we can hardly believe that the, the servant identified in chapter 42 is the servant who suffers in Isaiah 53. So remember, this is within... Think of these containers. The first container, this is in the, in the section of the book of Isaiah all about comfort, deliverance, salvation. It's two halves. One is a historical salvation from Iraq. The second half is all about our deliverance from sin. Embedded are four hymns called servant songs that identify not Moses, not Cyrus, but who is God going to send to bring us out of our slavery to sin. The first of these servant songs that identifies this ultimate deliverer is in Isaiah 42 verse one, uh, verses 1 to 4. The second is in Isaiah 49, 1 to 6. The third is in Isaiah 50, 4 to 9. And then the third, which we're going to look at in a moment, is Isaiah 52, 13 to 53, 12. Don't worry about that right now, except if you have a pen, jot it down so you can go back and read them for yourself. That's my Easter gift to you. These servant songs, go and read them. Get to know your Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, through the book of Isaiah. I just want to give you a a, a one-line summary of each of the hymns, and then we're going to end our time in the fourth hymn. The first servant song that introduces the ultimate deliverer, which is in Isaiah 42, verses 1 to 4. In this hymn, Isaiah pictures the servant as the idyllic king. Here's your king. He's going to bring justice into the world. But then it's amazing. He goes on and he says, but this king is going to do that gently. He's not going to put out a flickering wick. Uh, a, a broken reed he's not, or a, a, a damaged reed he's not going to break. This is different than the prophetic expectation that the king is going to reign in justice and righteousness. So even here we have a king who's coming, but he's not coming to judge. He's coming to save. That's the first servant song. The second servant song is in Isaiah 49, verses 1 through 6. In this servant song, The servant is pictured as a prophet who will speak the words of God and bring about repentance in Israel and all the nations. So not only is he a king who will restore justice through gentleness, he's also the prophet who will speak the true words of God. And anyone who listens to this prophet and takes his words to heart will be drawn into repentance and through repentance into a right relationship with God. The third servant song is in Isaiah chapter 50, verses 4 through 9. And in this song, the servant is pictured as a scribe, as a teacher of the law, who will be rejected for teaching the truth. And here we begin to see the beginning of how this servant is going to deliver us. He's going to come and he's going to say, I have not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. And we'll hate him for it. The fourth servant song, Isaiah 52, verses 13 to 53, 12. In this hymn about 
our ultimate deliverer. The servant is pictured as a priest who intercedes for sinners. Moreover, he's not just the priest, though he is. Don't miss the priestly imagery. He is the priest who gives intercession. How does he do that? He's also the lamb that is sacrificed. And if, if you're soaking yourself in the book of Isaiah, you can't help but remember that this whole section is drawing us back to that exodus from Egypt. And so when you think about a lamb and you think about exodus imagery and you think about deliverance from slavery and, and a second deliverance from captivity, you're thinking about a Passover lamb. He's our great high priest. He's also our Passover lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Let's read this hymn in total. I'm going to ask you to stand. Find your spot in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 52. This is the fourth of four servant songs in that third section of the book of Isaiah about deliverance. There is a fifth servant song which Jesus quotes to inaugurate his ministry in Isaiah 61, but that's for another sermon. This is the Word of God from 2700 B.C. Isaiah 52, starting in verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you. Yes, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which that they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrow and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned. Every one of us to our own way. The Lord has laid on Him 
the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet He opened not His mouth. And like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so He opened not His mouth. By oppression and judgment, He was taken away. And as for His generation, who considered that He was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of My people? And they made His grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him as he's put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be counted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death, was numbered with the transgressors. Yet He bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. The Word of God. Please be seated. Four very quick observations that I want to draw your attention to. As I've already said, number one, Jesus is our Passover. Look at verse 7. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. He opened not His mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so He opened not His mouth. Admittedly, the imagery there is more broad than Passover. I don't think we could derive Passover explicitly from that verse, but it's from chapters 40 through 48, really, in all that Passover imagery that I want us to consider that Jesus is our Passover. Which means this any who take his blood by faith and apply it to their lives, at the final judgment, God will pass over. Observation number two. For whom did Jesus die? He died for the elect from all nations. He was a Jewish Messiah, the King of the Jews who came for Israel, but He also came for Gentiles from every nation, from the ends of the earth. And we see that there in verse 15 of chapter 52. So shall He sprinkle many nations. He has sprinkled us with His blood. His blood was not just for Israel, though He died for Israel, make no mistake. But Gentiles counted a privilege that the King of the Jews, the Passover Lamb who came to Israel, 
The Messiah in the line of David, with His blood, He has sprinkled you with the blood of the new covenant. Praise be to God. We've been adopted into the family of Abraham. Observation number three. Jesus' death was a substitutionary death. It goes by, theologians will say penal substitution. Penal meaning penalty. That we all exist apart from Christ under the penalty of God's righteousness because of our sin. And this is the glorious thing of, of this prophecy is God sent forth His servant, which we know is His Son, to stand in our place. He's our substitute. You think, the thing is this, every one of your sins and mine will be judged by God. The full wrath of God will fall against all of your sins and against all of my sins. The question is, where will your sins be when God's judgment comes crashing down on them? Will your sins be found in the body of Christ while He hang on the, hung on the cross? Or will it be found in you yourself when you stand before the great white throne and God the Father sta- sitting in all of His glory? Where will God judge you for your sins? On the cross or before the throne of justice? Here's the offer that Isaiah prophesied. Jesus came to die in our place. Take a look at verses 5 and 6. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. And upon Him was the chastisement that has brought us peace. With His wounds, we are healed. The Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us. All of us. Take a look at the end of verse 12. He bore the sin of many and He makes intercession for the transgressors. Implication here is whoever this suffering servant is, and remember we're 2700 B.C. Whoever this is, we know who it is, but whoever it is had to have been without sin. Because He cannot bear the sin of many. He cannot bear our sin, our transgressions, our iniquity if He has to also pay for His own. He had no sin debt to pay for. So He pays for ours. (laughs) Who Who refuses this offer? Who rejects this kind of offer? Let me pay for your sins by crucifixion. And if you find that you are rejecting this offer, I plead with you, give Him your sin and He'll pay for it and intercede for your eternal life. Fourth and finally, Jesus died to to fulfill the will of God. Take a look at verse 10. It was the will of the Lord to crush Him. He has put Him to grief. (laughs) 
We can look at this several different ways. Just remember that God the Father loved His Son eternally and perfectly. The Son loved His Father eternally and perfectly. He had never sinned. He was the perfect Son and still is. And yet it was the will of the Lord to crush Him. Why? Why crush the perfect Son? Love. Because God has to judge us. God has to condemn us. There's no way around it. He is fully righteous. He has to deal with our sin and the only way to deal with it is to punish it. But He doesn't want to. You know, there's various levels to the will of God, but on one level, he, he wants us to cry out to Him, Abba, Father. And the only way for us to be able to cry out to God, Abba, Father, for our sin to be dealt with is for the innocent, sinless, perfect, eternal Son of God to be crushed in our place. And so it was the will of God that that happened. Because He loves us. The other way to look at this, and both are true, it says it was the will of the Lord to crush Him. Who is the Lord? God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is the Lord. It was the will of the Father to crush his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It was the will of the Son, Jesus Christ Himself, to be crushed. And it was the will of the Holy Spirit for the Son to be crushed. We're told in Ephesians 1 that before the foundation of the world, God decided within Himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that Christ would be crucified because the Lord, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit loved us even before He spoke us into being. And so He predestined us unto salvation through this act of God. What kind of God do we serve? That before He said, let there be light, He he saw it all. Your sin and mine. Our rebellion. Our hatred of Him. He saw the cost to Himself. And He willed, before He said, let there be light, I'm going to crush my sinless Son in the place of sinners. What a God. Does this God not deserve our worship and our praise? Can we not lay down our lives for this God who has laid down His life for us? Is our life not more than what we have given ourselves to? He deserves our everything. Not half-hearted devotion, not squeezing Him in here or there, but our all and our all because He gave us everything 
that he has to give. The Lord's servant is the king who will bring forth justice for all the earth. The Lord's servant is the true prophet who will draw Israel and the nations to repentance. The Lord's servant is the teacher of the law who was rejected by every power and principality for teaching the truth and fulfilling the law and the prophets. The Lord's servant is our great high priest, the Lamb of God, our Passover who takes away the sin of the world and makes intercession for those who are found in Him. Give me any other gospel as glorious as this one. There is none. This is our God. This is His story. This is His plan. And today we remember that He brought it to its climax in Christ 700 years after He prophesied it. And now 2,000 years later, we look back and we thank Him, we praise Him, and we look forward to the return of our King when Isaiah 56 through 66 will be brought to its full completion. A new heavens and a new earth for those who find themselves on the cross with Christ, but unquenchable fire where the worm never dies for those who reject this gospel. Let's pray. Oh God, on this Good Friday, we remember that you are our King, our prophet, our teacher, our priest. Lord Jesus, you are our Lamb, our Passover. And you died on the cross to satisfy God's justice. You died on the cross to draw us into repentance. And so we repent of our sin. You died on the cross to exemplify the truth. You died on the cross to bear our sins. You died on the cross because you are love. Help us to receive this love. Walk in this love. Extend this love. Help us to be children of the King who cry, Abba, Father. Because we are found in Christ. You are our suffering servant. In your name we pray. Amen.